Well, greetings to all. I feel like I'm a special guest speaker. I've been gone so long. <laughs> that means I get to talk about what I want without any repercussions. <clears throat> Missed you all a lot. Good to be back. Came back and uh, was planning on doing Sunday school and because of Chris's interesting journey yesterday. Oh, I'm here preaching this morning, so it was a, an interesting switch up. <clears throat> but I've been thinking recently about a topic of what we might call true religion. And as I thought about how to sort of address the topic, true religion is really throughout the scriptures, The exact phrase is not there. We will hear in James, of course, pure religion. But in the end, as you march through the Bible, go through the Bible, you see this issue of what is it to truly serve the Lord? Who is the true God? That is the issue that is always in the forefront. Whether it's how to come to God in Cain and Abel, where one comes with faith and a proper sacrifice and the other comes as best we can tell by works and an improper sacrifice, there's true and false religion in the outcome of it, the very beginning of things. And of course, we could even go back further and say that Satan came and said that true religion was humanism instead of serving God. Be your own God, determine good and evil for yourself. So this issue of true religion is really a big topic, although the phraseology isn't exactly there all the time, but there's always comparisons. The Psalms, David is comparing the wicked with the righteous continually. The psalmist is. So this issue of true religion is really a big concern, and we see that many, many in the Bible miss true religion, and the consequences are disastrous. So I thought this morning we would look at this topic and as I thought a way of sort of framing it, true religion is about having a good compass. So imagine you were actually worth something to the world in terms of monetary uh, <clears throat> value and so you got kidnapped and for some reason they dropped you in the middle of a desert and you found yourself here at high noon. And high noon's an important item in this story. You find yourself here, and of course, after you figure out that this has really happened to you, then you go, okay, let me calm down, let me take a knee, take a breath, sort out where I am, use my brain and figure out that, well, I don't have any clue where to go, and the sun's hot, This is a desert, and it doesn't look like it has any end to it. Um, I'm literally cooked uh, if things continue the way they are. So there you are out in that desert, and you're all forlorn, and you're certainly praying to the Lord and asking for his marvelous redemption. And this airplane comes overhead. It's flying very low. And as it comes across, you see something kind of white float out of the airplane cabin, and the white thing floats down, and what you come up with is, well, there's a map. 
This map falls down right in front of you. You pick it up, and here's this map of the desert you're in. Here's that universal symbol of location, meaning this is where you are. And at the top right of the map, well, that's where the oasis is, where if you can get there, then you will be to eat, drink. Some passers-by will come sooner or later, and you'll, you'll be back to civilization. You will be saved. You will have life. And so you're sitting there going, great, I have a map. You're just really rejoicing until you figure out what. Well, let's see, how are we going to orient this map? I've got a map, and there's the life right there. I can see it, touch it on the map. It's actually only a few miles if I look at the legend. I can get there in an hour, but which way is it? Now, some of you younger folks, maybe even some of you older ones, I don't know, may not know what a map is. You know what a phone is. You, you know how to look up the latitude longitude. But when it actually comes to looking up a map and figuring out how to coordinate things with a map, you, that skill set is a lost art. But here's the problem. The map tells you where to go, but you don't really know the orientation of that map. Okay, should I start with the map in this direction? Should I start in the map in that direction? I mean, which way do you go? So what are you hoping for in this circumstance? Well, you're, you're praying to the Lord saying, I got this great map. It can get me where I'm going, but I don't really know how to point the map so I can get properly oriented. You're praying to the Lord, and sure enough, another airplane comes by, really flying low, and you watch as this item kind of comes out of the airplane, drops down, a thousand feet or so and hits the sand and poofs up and you go and pick it up and lo and behold, what do you have? A compass. This is a good thing, right? Because you paid attention in school, you remembered that the top of a map is always north. And you remembered that the little red needle on there is pointing north always. So all I got to do is move that north on the compass and drop it on the map and the map's pointing north. Now I know where I am Now I know where to head for my oasis. So just having a map isn't good enough. You have to be able to orientate that map, that map, orient it properly, so you can truly know how to get where you are going. I use that illustration to sort of, I don't know, just sort of uh, present the reality that we got 66 books in the Bible, 31,000 verses, almost a million words. It's ancient literature. There's 2,000 years of tradition and debate and opinion that have gone by in the past. A whole Western civilization that is right now crumbling and being systematically dismantled, but a whole Western civilization is built on it. We live in a day when at your fingertips and from every direction someone's trying to give you an opinion an interpretation, a viewpoint of this Bible. It's your map. It's your map of how to please God. But everybody's telling you, well, you should point the map this way. Oh, no, 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 you should point the map this way. Or you should point the map up. Or point, they're just, everybody's giving you these opinions. So how are you supposed to read it? How are you supposed to really be able to orient it so that you know you're going to go in the right direction? 
With all the voices and opinions out there, how do you know what is true religion? What is true Christianity? It's a big issue. But thankfully, we have what I'm going to call some compass passages in the Bible. They are key places, key passages in the Bible that act as checkpoints and sort of act as compasses. You can take a, a passage, usually brief, usually one or two sentences, and you can drop it on the Bible itself and say, well, this is how I'm supposed to orient the Bible. This is how I'm supposed to be able to read how to follow what is and how to follow true religion. And these passages are really significant. We usually love them because they summarize things, they clarify things, they make things simple, they capture the essence of things. They keep us properly oriented, they define true religion, and we usually hang them on our walls, don't we? I don't know if you all still do that, but I remember as a young Christian, man, I was hanging everything on the wall because everything was speaking to me. You know, every, I was just, should have just put my whole Bible up there at one point. <clears throat> but these are these special passages that we see all the time. Now, these passages are picked by certain people. Some passages are picked as compass passages. I don't know that I would place them in that category. They're good, but, but some are really core. So I want us this morning to look at a few of these passages and to focus on one in particular. What are some core passages in the Bible that are our compass so that we can properly orient this map that we have before us? Heavenly Father, we come to your throne. It's a majestic throne. Lord, it is how we are to perceive you, how we are to think of you, that you are full of majesty and glory and honor on a throne. It's hard for us in a day of democracies even worse in a day of every man for himself. Everyone's a law unto theirself. It's hard for us to have a, a picture of you being on the throne. We have to go back to uh, centuries past to have a sense of it. Lord, we love those pictures that you are the God of glory. You are full of majesty and honor. And Lord, we just ask that this morning as we look in your word at these compass passages that you have given to us, passages that are simple, that are straightforward, that sort of rise out above the rest, that you've designed to clarify to us in simple words, simple terms, simple presentation, who you are and what it is you want from us. And we ask you, bless it by your Holy Spirit, because that's the only thing that ultimately matters. We certainly can read these things and think on these things and put them in our brains and chew on them, but in the end, Lord, they need to be deep in our hearts and only your Holy Spirit can put it there. And we ask you to do that for everyone here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, one passage that I think of, and these would be a couple Old Testament examples of passages that sort of rise out above the rest that could speak to us in a, in a sort of more, I don't know, summary and con significant way. Psalm 51. Been a Christian very long, this psalm should be close to your heart. When you sin and you will. And you have to address that sin and you realize what sin is. And you're really glad for King David. You don't 
you're not glad that he sinned, but you're glad that when he did, he, he wrote about it and gave us an inspired record of how we in our minds and hearts are to address our sin before the Lord. Now David <clears throat> had put his compass in his drawer for probably at least a year. He was supposed to be going out to war. He was supposed to be leading his armies. That's what kings did. Because back, back in those days, if you weren't defending your turf, somebody was taking it over. And it's just, just the way of the world back then, hard for us to relate to, really impossible. And so David was supposed to be going out to war, but instead of doing that, leading his army, doing what kings do and should be doing to protect the good of his people that are under him, he sort of laid behind, his eyes wandered. He wasn't necessarily looking for trouble, but trouble found him, and he went along with it quickly. David and Bathsheba had their, their relationship, Bathsheba being forced, David being just aggressive. David sinned, and a child became the evidence of that sin. David tried to hide that, committed murder. That didn't work either. His compass was in the drawer. All this time, David, as king of Israel, would be participating in religious things, wouldn't he? He'd be walking around, he'd be talking to people. People say, David, hi, how are you doing? And he'd go, I'm, a, I'm doing just fine. Meanwhile, his heart is smiting him. You can read Psalm 32 where the whole time he was just dried up, shriveled up inside. He had grieved God beyond measure. But he wasn't going to confess it. His compass was in his drawer. And finally, after about a year had gone by, the time it took him to not do what he was supposed to be doing, the time it took for this baby to come to the point of being born, about a year. And God, David still wasn't ready to confess his sin, so God sent the prophet Nathan to him and brought David to clarity about his sin, and his heart smote him, and he, he wrote this psalm, one of several. David records his painful reorientation as he takes the compass back out of his drawer and sets it before him, and he realizes that compass is pointing to these things. It's pointing north. Lord, you desire truth in the innermost being, and I, I, I wasn't living that for a year. I was in hiding and rationalizing and in self-deception. In the hidden part, in the inward being of everything that we are, back then they, didn't, they weren't psychologically oriented. And to try to take the words of the Bible and turn them into modern psychological terminology is probably a big mistake. But they did know that there was an inward part of our being. There's an outward part and there's an inward part. And there are various words used to describe that inward part. And for us to take those words and say, see, we're body, soul, and spirit, because those are the words of the Bible, as we'll see later. Well, if you want to do it that way, you're going to have to add more than just body, soul, and spirit, because Jesus says mind, heart, and soul. We're going to have to up our, our game if we're going to start just using biblical terminology as the terminology for modern-day psychology. The Bible just stacks words up to talk about our inward being and its wholeness and in its completeness and its comprehensiveness. David says, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. 
He's got some hope here. God is not done with him. But he is going to have to go through a gauntlet of grief for a season. True religion is not the religion of externals. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. Oops. <clears throat> you are not pleased with burnt offering. David had been going through those motions for a year, convincing everybody he was doing fine. But those externals of religion that were commanded by God, God says you need to have a proper view of them. The essence of true religion is not in the ordinances of ceremonies. It's not in liturgies. It's here. Lord, you are not pleased with burnt offering. Even though you've said to do them, that's not what you're looking for. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And if God has ever laid you low, you're really glad that God won't despise you. See, while David was walking around, strutting around, trying to convince everybody he was doing okay, he was walking in pride. And God brought him to real, genuine conviction and repentance. And he realized it's a broken heart that God looks at, not the proud peacock. So here's true religion. It's about the internals of the heart, not the externals of ceremony and ritual. We'll bypass Amos. We'll look at Micah. It's another example. This is sort of a popular verse. This is probably a verse you will see on people's walls. I have a little song. If you want me to sing it, I'll sing it for you. Um, But it's a great passage. Now Micah and Amos, Amos has a very similar passage to this. Micah and Amos prophesied Amos first around 750 or so B.C., Micah probably around 730 B.C. All this time Isaiah was prophesying too, so there's Micah, Amos, Isaiah, and as you read their prophecies, they're all sort of coming at things the same way. So you have a number of passages that resemble this, Isaiah chapter 1, Amos 6. But here's the question, with what shall I come to the Lord? That should be a significant question to somebody. How am I going to approach God? See, before the Lord saves us, when we're just sort of walking around in this world, perhaps bumping around in this world, I know I, I, had, I knew nothing of God. No one ever told me about God. The most I got about, knew about God was from the movie The Exodus with Charlton Heston. And I remember when I got saved and watched it in the movies, man, it's like God just blessed that movie to pieces. He hadn't done it like that since, but when I was first saved, he really used that movie, Ten Commandments. It's really the first, probably, content of the Bible I really, really started understanding. But here's this question. Most people don't ask this question. Most people just have an opinion. Basically, I'm going to come to God my way on my terms and my time. Isn't that what you see? Some people may say that right out. Other people may sort of, you know, him haw around, be a good old boy or good old girl about it. But in the end, they're going to say, you know, I have my opinion about God and about coming to God. Thank you for talking to me. 
And that's what you can expect. So you need to be really good at this true religion thing, by the way, if you're going to be a good witness. Because everybody has false religion out there. Everybody has a false view of God. And they stand in their opinion of God. They, they just know who God is. And they're ready to stand before him on their false opinion. Hollywood, you know, you, you can't go to them for anything these days. Never probably really could. But all you can go to them for is a false view of God. If a movie starts up and there's a person in it who's a Christian, particularly a Christian minister, well, you can bet they're going to be the bad guy. Anything to dismantle Western civilization, anything to dismantle the Christian worldview, it's by design. It's not just that there's some people who don't like Christianity. There are a whole group of people who are just truly hell-bent on dismantling the Christian worldview in our society. But this is a big question. How shall I come to the Lord? Now this question was asked sort of by Micah, and it's kind of a rhetorical question. It's being asked in order to give an answer. How shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before God on high? At least there's some recognition that God's on high. Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with a yearling calf? Now, Gwen and I, <clears throat> watching TV is a lost cause. <clears throat> Most movies, certainly anything past five years ago, uh, from five years ago to date, it's lost cause, even trying to, trying to watch uh, even uh, Dead Angel doesn't seem to be able to save them, the movies. <clears throat> so we've gone to YouTube. And we have been watching, let me see if I get this right. It's called Hoof GPS. And it's about a farrier. Does anybody know what a farrier is? All right, some of you do. All right. And it's about a farrier in southwestern Scotland. And he's made a living and a YouTube channel out of going out and shining up the hooves and fixing up the hooves of cows. And you think, this is ridiculous, you know? You might watch it to be sort of interesting for, interested for a second. You see the first one. You've seen them all, you kind of think. But it's really fascinating. Never knew that cows had to have manicures. Did not know that. And did not know that it was a regular job. And it's actually, you can go look it up online. You can get, make twenty to $45,000 a year being a farrier. As soon as I'm done with my current job, I'm going to go to school, sign up, be one. It's kind of cool. I mean, they're just sitting there carving up these hooves. And only a city kid could be interested like that in fixing cow hooves. And so it's really hard for me, probably hard for most of you, to go, what is a yearling calf? But that was part of their regular society. And it was part of the offerings to the Lord. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Again, these were things that were part of the offering. And here's an exaggeration. Does God care about these things? Now, he certainly cares about what they represent. He certainly cares about what they symbolize. He certainly cares that they point to the cross of his son. 
He cares about that. But as actual ceremonies, as rituals, as religious practice, does he really care about them? Then he ups the ante. Should I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Should I sacrifice one of my children for my sin? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. That's all false religion. And you know you're dealing with false religion when you're dealing with people who are focusing on these things. When Satan's throwing a wet blanket on you and you're just, your brain's just foggy as can be. And you don't know what's going on. And he starts throwing on you, you know, God's just mean. And God's just, you know, he's just looking to hurt people. And he's, all these things. False religion. Flip on a Hollywood movie. They'll give you false religion all day long. God is awful. God is mean. God is horrible. God is trying to not give you life, but give you death and all these other things. But God, through his prophet, corrects all this, corrects this misinformation about true religion. He says, God has told you, O man, what's good. What does the Lord require of you? Go to a monastery. No. Travel around the world and be a missionary. No, that's a privilege. It's not something you have to do to earn the love of God. What does he require of you? As a group, as a social order, they should be doing justice and loving kindness and walking humbly with their God, with your God. If this God that you call upon is your God, then these are the things that should characterize your life in the big and small aspects of your life, in whatever place you are in, in the social order. Are you a leader? Make sure justice and kindness and humility before the living God, a recognition of God, who he is. Not pontificating your opinions about God, but hearing from God and, and understanding who God is and relying upon God. Walking humbly with God. That's what God is looking for. That is true religion. Now some people have tagged a passage like this as being social justice. See, God cares about social justice. So we're in the social justice movement. and We're promoting social justice for all. Well, there may be some truth that this is justice in the social relationships of the Israelites. But I don't read anywhere here in Micah, don't read anywhere in Amos, don't read anywhere in Isaiah. I read nothing about woke ideology. I read nothing about neo-arch Marxism. (coughs) I read nothing about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I read none of those things. And so when people try to hijack a passage of Scripture that simply talks about justice (coughs) and thereby assume and demand and take it and grab it and put it in their social justice repertoire of biblical material, that is false religion. That is an abuse of Scripture. There's nothing here to justify that. It has everything to do with understanding the true God and true religion, nothing to do with social justice. 
individuals in these passages, whether it's Isaiah or Micah or Amos, they are called to genuine repentance. God says, change. Here's what I want. I want you to change. I want you to act justly. Read in Isaiah some of the things the people were doing, and you're aghast. Murdering people just to get their land. I mean, (laughs) this is serious stuff, what was going on. These individuals are called to genuine repentance, whether individually or as a group. But they are not called to social activism, and they are not called to a cultural revolution. They are called to change their ways as human beings before the living God. Each one of them individually and each one of them in their place. To start doing justice and to start loving kindness instead of oppression. And to humble themselves before God. I don't see any of that in the social justice movement. So people will take passages like this and impress them into their narrative. And they kind of switch price tags around and convince the unwitting folks that God is for their social justice narrative and their social justice mission. And he just is not. He's for everybody repenting and walking humbly before him. We can go to the New Testament. Again, these are examples of what are some passages that is a compass that you can stick on the Bible, stick in front of you, put on the wall to say, here's how do you properly orient yourself when you read the Bible. Here's how you're to understand it. Here's how you're to think of it. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's dialoguing with them <coughs> back and forth. Comes to the place and he says, you know, you guys search the scriptures because you have a misconception about them. You think that an intellectual grasp of these scriptures and your intellectual debates and your traditions and your theologies and and all your little group meetings and your journals and, and all your professional theological activities, you think that in those things you have eternal life, that you have the truth. He says you don't. The scriptures don't point to themselves as an end in themselves. The scriptures bear witness of Jesus Christ. The scriptures are not fodder for theological debate and discussion. The scriptures point somewhere. The scriptures bear witness of something. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be saved, you don't have to learn the scriptures. It's a good thing. But to be saved, you have to come to Jesus. You have to come with that repentance of Micah. And you have to come with that humility of Micah. You have to come to Jesus to have life. An intellectual grasp of the scriptures for however good it might be and however well it might serve one will not give life. Only Jesus does. So I'm not denigrating knowing the scriptures. Know them as all that you can. But always put this compass on your knowledge of the word of God. Let this compass get that map in front of you correct. These all are talking about Jesus and they're designed to bring you to him. That you might have life.
Matthew 23, a famous chapter to those who have read Matthew. The seven woes that Jesus pronounces on false religion. And Jesus goes through, remember, all of his life he had grown up and watched the Pharisees operate. <coughs> now, not every Pharisee was an unbeliever. Some believed and were saved. Not every Pharisee was a radical hypocrite. But as a group, they had these characteristics, and these are the things that kind of stuck out. They were misguided in their views of religion, and they were misguided in their personal walk with God. Seven times they're called hypocrites. That is, you say one thing, but you are doing, whether openly or secretly, another. Matthew 23, 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. (coughs) Now, probably about the only uh, one of these items I might know about is, is mint. I may have probably eaten these others, but I have no clue what they are. So I'm I'm not a good person to come to and go, what is dill? What is cumin? That's some dill pickles. I guess that might be it. I know what mint is. But my guess is, is if they're like any of the items that I have, such as mint and things, that they're really small, you've got to put them in a little jar and you've got to open them up. And can you imagine tithing 10% of dill seeds? I mean, that's pretty tedious. Now, I'm a programmer, so I'm used to doing those things. I'm like, sure, man, we'll write a program for this. We'll count it out. We'll put it in a spreadsheet. We'll get it going, you know. But to, to, to do this on a regular basis, you've got to be really t- tedious, and you've got to really be thinking this is a good thing, because this is an ex- expenditure of energy and focus that needs to, you know, you need to have a return on your investment. But that's what they focused on. They thought that that's what God cared about. They thought that that is what would commend them to God. But Jesus said, you do these things and you've neglected the weightier matters or provisions of the law. So in the law of God, there are things that are more significant than others. Sure, it's all God's law. And if you're a rebel and says, man, I'm not counting out my dill seeds, forget it, God's not getting my dill seeds. You know, the problem with that isn't the dill seeds, the problem with that is the attitude. Right? And so your relationship to the dill seeds is a picture of a, a rotten heart toward God. But in and of themselves, it's a small matter. Jesus said you shouldn't neglect it. But it's a small matter compared to the things that they were neglecting. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are the weightier matters. These are the things that define true religion. These are the things Jesus said you should have done without neglecting the others. You are blind guides. Back then, there wasn't refrigerators. I know Gwen... uh, brings plants into the house in the, sometimes in the winter, and sometimes they come in with these little flies. And there I am, because I make my own peach tea, 
peach tea plus <clears throat> fake sugar tastes almost like sweet tea. It's South Carolina sweet tea, so I love it, and it's got hardly any calories. <clears throat> Doesn't seem to be doing me much good, but it's there. We're not there. And all winter I'm saying, Gwen, you've got to get rid of these plants because I'll be sitting there and I'll heat the water up, I'll pour it in, it'll steep the tea. And the next morning I'm going because I've got to let it cool. The next morning I go in there and there's three or four gnats floating on the top. It's like, ah. So this is what it means. You've got to strain those things out before you can eat it. Sometimes I just scoop them off and sometimes they've already fallen to the bottom. I'm like, oh well, we'll see what happens later. <laughs> so I don't even strain at the gnats sometimes, but... Jesus said, you go out there and you're all careful about getting the gnats out of your sweet tea, but you swallow down a big camel. The picture is graphic for those who live in that society, graphic to us as we think about it. But here's what people will do. People will have imbalanced views of what is true Christianity. It can happen to anyone. It could happen to any circle. I've been in certain circles as I grew up and saw it happening, and it was always grievous to me. At first I thought I was wrong, and I started to realize, no, they're going against the Scriptures, and then when I started to question them, I realized, oops, I'm now a person they don't want to have around or talk to. The blind guides will defend their blindness to the death. James, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. You visit the orphans and the widows in their distress and you keep oneself unstained from the world. Now you'd have to sort of read the context of James to understand why he would single these things out. James is most likely addressing a broad Jewish Christian population in the early church that are of the diaspora spread abroad in all the cities. They'd been there for centuries as a result of being carried away to Babylon. Some of them went and just dwelt in cities and never came back. That's the diaspora. And there seem to be some common characteristics in these groups of Jewish folks who are claiming to be Christians because the, the, in the end, James is clearly addressed to Christians were professing Christians. There was pride, there was greed, there was worldliness, and there was hardness of heart. So James opens his letter with a very clarifying statement about what is true religion. Don't be deceived. And a lot of talk about it. What is true faith? By the way, if you go to James and you go, well, James seems to be saying that justification is by works and not by faith, then you're misreading James. I hope that helps you if some of you are in that. I had a hard time with it. Even Martin Luther said that James wasn't, wasn't a letter from God, a strawy epistle, he called it, because he thought that James was trying to articulate the doctrine of justification. And that's not what James is doing at all. James is addressing the doctrine of true faith, not the doctrine of justification by faith. And so when James makes the statement, he says you're justified by, not by faith only, but by works also, he's not trying to put forth a doctrine of justification that's by faith plus works, so I can, he could be a Roman Catholic. He was putting forth a doctrine that true faith is pure and undefiled religion. True faith visits orphans and widows, and they weren't doing that. True faith keeps someone unstained from the world. You see the world for what it is, that the world is aligned against God. And later on, James will say, don't you know that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? 
because the world is against God? And so here we see that James is sort of giving us an encapsulated version of true religion that has been tailored to his audience. It's not comprehensive. We can't go here and say, well, this is all religion is. It's just these things. For James, he's trying to encapsulate true religion and describe true religion to a specific audience that had specific issues and specific needs. They needed to hear these things because they were very clearly in the rest of the letter, very clearly their big issues. But still, here's true religion. And here's a whole group of people across a whole swath of territory in the early church who were missing the mark of true religion. So this matter of true religion is a big issue. So those are just sort of some samples that are around to sort of get us to see that we need a compass. But the biggest and best and most accurate compass I know in the scripture anywhere and everywhere, is right here in Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 34 through 39, but when the Pharisees heard that he had put his Sadducees to silence, <coughs> they gathered themselves together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he, Jesus, said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first, foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. I almost feel like I want to pray again because this is just uh, such a significant passage. But the background is in this chapter 22, the Pharisees in verse 15 had come with the Herodians to try to trip Jesus up about paying taxes to get him to say something in front of the Romans that would make him, you know, be subject to being a uh, seditious person. And Jesus gave them an answer they couldn't get a hold of. Render to Caesar's what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. A few verses later, the Sadducees, so the, the, the Pharisees got put, to, put down, so the Sadducees, Sadducees make a run on it. And so they bring him what do they think is their trick question that they've probably had around for decades that no one's been able to answer and they assume is, is their coup de gras uh, <clears throat> question or issue or logic to deny the resurrection. And Jesus answers them, God is not the God of the dead but of the living. And they're like, oops, <laughs> I guess our trick question doesn't work anymore. When the Pharisees... They hear that the Sadducees, you know, fell out just like uh, they had with the Caesar and taxes issue. The Pharisees heard that Jesus had put the Sadducees to silence. The Pharisees sort of regathered themselves together. And the setting of this, probably this whole section of this chapter, is probably some marketplace, maybe close to the temple. But it's a place of public gathering, and the, and the Sadducees are over here in their little group, maybe 5, 10, 20, who knows, and they're, they're all talking and they're, they're strategizing how they're going to trick up, trip Jesus up. And then the Pharisees over here, who are arch enemies of the Sadducees, by the way, they're over here with, with their little group and their lawyers and, and their experts and their MIT graduates uh, in, in the law, 
and, and of you know, the law of God, the scriptures, and the traditions of the Pharisees. They're over here trying to figure out who are they going to put forward to try to trip up Jesus. So the Pharisees try first, and they get some Herodians to go catch him with the taxes, and then they lose. And then, well, the, the Sadducees say, well, we're going to take a run on it, and they go, and, and they lose. And the Pharisees are back here again going, well, we're really glad he put down the Sadducees and answered them, but let's try again. They were emboldened by the failure of their enemies. So they sort of collected themselves together and talked, kind of like a huddle, you know, a little football huddle. And one of them, who was a lawyer, asked a question. So they, they took this fellow who was studied in the law, probably one of their better students or more successful individuals, intelligent, experienced, and they're going to put him up against Jesus, and he unfortunately volunteered, I'm sure. He probably thought, whoa, what an honor. Really confident that he's going to be able to trip Jesus up with a question. He's going to test Jesus. They weren't asking him for truth. That's the attitude of a lot of people. They don't really come to God for truth. They come to God sometimes just for a dialogue with their own opinions, see how they, see how they work. Some people say they come to God and say, well, God didn't answer me. It's like, well, how did you come to God? But they're going to test Jesus. And he says, teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? So apparently this question was being bandied about in the Pharisee circles. And there was a differences of opinion. Well, is it this? Is it this? Is it the other? And everybody has their learned opinions. And everybody has their schools of thought and adherence. There's all the young men, of course, the young men, they're, they're going to attach themselves and really become bellicose about things. That's what young men do. That's what I did. I mean, it's just, when the Lord saves a young man, he's like, okay, I'm going to have to go through about five years of this before he figures out that, you know, do justly, love kindness, walk humbly with God. But it's part, it's part of the growing up. It's part of what the male temperament is about. You've got to think these things through. You've got to exercise them in your mind because one day you've got to give leadership in them. So I'm sure the females just see it as ego. It's not ego. It's a young man learning to be a leader. You've got to try things out. Not easy. But teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? And this is an awesome question. Are you sad that this guy came up and asked this question of Jesus? Or are you like, wow, poor lawyer got bested, but I'm sure glad he asked this question because the answer's amazing. The answer is amazing. Here you have God himself in the flesh about to tell the entire human race what is the thing that is most important to God for time and eternity. This is the most important question that could ever be asked in the subject area of how do I serve God? What is true religion? What does he want from me? There's no bigger question. There's no more significant question. And look who's giving us the answer. 
Now, Jesus answers without hesitation. He doesn't, like the Pharisees, go, hmm, let me think this through. You know, if I say this, none of that. He's like on the spot, Johnny on the spot. He's God himself. He knows exactly what he wants from us. He knows exactly why he created the human race. He knows exactly why he's endured all of the stench of sin for thousands of years. He knows exactly why he's about to hang his son on a cross and have the biggest, most broken heart in all of the history of the universe. It did not please God in the sense that he was happy to crucify his son. It pleased him in the sense that his son was willing to obey to save a human race from sin. That God himself was ready to endure his own justice to save a human race from sin. And Jesus, without hesitation, says, and we all know this, I'm sure, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. with all of your soul, with all of your mind. Now this is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.5, and in that place it's sort of a preamble to an exhortation about, you know, it's, he's finishing the history, Moses is finishing the history of how they got to the plain of Moab, and now he's saying when you go into the land, and this is the first thing you're supposed to consider, you know, more foundational than anything, the most significant thing, at his exhortation of how they're supposed to live was this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So even in the Old Testament, it should have been obvious that this was core. This was foundational. This was the essence of things. So the Son of God tells us what God wants. And God focuses on the internals. Heart is something that's inward. Soul, again, that's an inward thing. Mind is an inward thing. And mind in those days would sort of mean not so much our, our thinking process, but our, our whole souled obedience, the very internals of who we are. These are all synonymous terms saying that whatever you are, whether you want to call it your heart, whether you want to call it your soul, whether you want to call it your mind, whatever aspects each one of these may be focused on, if they are, in the wholeness and the completeness of who you are as a human being, from the inside out, you are to love God. This is not about externals. Nothing external here. Each of these words... Talk about your attitude, your perspective, your orientation. Not so much about what you do, that comes later, but why you're doing it. Who are you? In your heart of hearts, who are you? It's utterly comprehensive. Jesus could have added another word if he wanted to. He could have added three words to just keep telling us, hey, everything that you are, no matter what aspect no matter what angle you are evaluated as or look at yourself as, you are to love God completely. Now, love is a commitment of our deepest self. Love is not an emotion. We are given an emotional framework of our part of our being, and that kicks in, hopefully, 
When it doesn't, it's awful, but it's not the essence of love. Love is a commitment from the deepest part of who you are. Your deepest self loves God. To love God here is about allegiance. Wasn't that the issue in the Garden of Eden? Satan comes and says, I need you to move, shift your allegiance from God to, well, me. Allegiance. Who are you going to serve, whether it benefits you or not? The tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden always conveyed the knowledge of good and evil. It would have conveyed that knowledge whether they ate it or whether they didn't. And with that tree there, the only thing about that tree had nothing to do with whether the tree itself would give you some chemical compound that would change your telomeres and give you something. The tree, the only thing about the tree that distinguished the tree from the other trees in essence was the commandment of God. Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. Well, why? You know, the question every child asks, and they get the answer because I said so. They promise they'll never say that to their kids until they have kids, and then their kids promise them. It just goes on and on. <clears throat> because I said so. Don't eat of the tree because I said so, and your allegiance to me is based on simply this, because I said so. Whether you benefit or not, don't eat of the tree because I said so. And every day that fruit is hanging there uneaten is a testimony to God, to them, to the universe, to principalities and powers that Adam and Eve have their allegiance with God because they love God. Adam did not have to earn sonship in the Garden of Eden. He already was a son of God. He was an image-bearing son of God. And the idea that he was in some covenant of works is just ludicrous. It's not there. He's an image-bearing son of God who has access to the tree of life freely. And all God called upon to do is you can have every tree, that tree, that tree, that tree, pick your trees. You can have them all, do whatever you want. But this tree is simply a representation of your allegiance to me. And Satan said, shift that allegiance to yourself, but really ultimately to Satan. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is God says, I'm going to break that allegiance to Satan, and hence the history of redemption follows. But you're to love God with all your heart, with all your allegiance, with the deepest self. It is an enduring commitment, and it is goodwill. It is freely given to God. He's not some cruel master that we cringe under. The fear of the Lord is clean. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. The fear of the Lord draws you to God. It does not repel you from him. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, everything we are. This is the greatest commandment. This is the biggest, best, single most, most comprehensive, if you will, definition or most uh, stated definition, most clear definition, the definition that you can take to the bank always. This is the greatest commandment that there is. Nothing greater. You cannot ever do any better for now or for eternity than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what he wants from you. 
You all that are parents, what do you want from your kids? Sometimes you want a break, but mostly you want what? Sometimes I just want to be on the couch, have them come and sit in my lap, and sometimes that's all God wants from you. But you're too busy about yourself, too busy about your own opinions, or too busy about your own things, and God just said, come sit on my lap for a while. This is the great commandment, love God. Love God no matter what. Love God no matter what the opposition. Love God no matter what the distortions. Love God in every way. Love him according to his word. Love him in truth. Love him in righteousness. Keep his commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Because you'll be like him. And he just wants us to be like him. If your child walks in the door all dirty and muddy and stinky, what do you tell him he's got to do before he's going to come sit in your lap? At least I know what the moms are going to say. And that's God. Hey, you're not going to come sit in my lap all stinky with sin. It's going to happen. We're going to get you cleaned up first. This is the great commandment. Do you love God? Is this what you pursue? This is the compass you should be putting on your Bible every day. This is the compass that you should have in your pocket every day. You should be pulling it out and have it handy every day. You should use it often. You should use it continually. You should reorient your entire life's map according to this compass. This is true religion. And then Jesus gives there's a second like it. You get a bonus answer, as it were. And it's really not, you know, a bonus. It's like, well, we can't talk about loving God without talking about those who are loving those who are in the image of God. We have an inescapable relationship and a social obligation to every image bearer of God. You can't say you love God and not love people. When the love of God is flowing in your heart, love for others is just going to be there because God loves people. I've always thought about the Proverbs. It talks about in chapter 8 that wisdom is delight is with the children of men. God loves people. Loves to do good things. And so God can't talk about love. Jesus can't talk about love until he's talking about loving people. There's the vertical and there's the horizontal. And you're supposed to love your neighbors yourself. That's a big unpack. Don't have time for it. Wish I did, but... And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. You cannot read the law and the prophets without coming to this conclusion that this is the true essence, the bottom line, the capstone of, however you wish to describe it, reading that Old Testament. The Old Testament isn't a harsh God. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who made the universe. This is the God who calls us all to repent and believe on him so that he can give us life. Don't have time to continue, so we'll stop here, but I want to go to Hebrews where one of the things that you have to do, what is it to love God? So much about loving God and the details of it in the scripture. One of the things it says in Hebrews chapter 11 is, you know, if you're going to come to God, you have to believe that he is and he's the rewarder of those that seek him. You think about that. The first thing you have to do to love God is just believe that he is. 
Recognize that he is. Acknowledge who he is. And recognize that he's good. He rewards. He doesn't beat up those who seek him. He doesn't play chess and hide himself from those who seek him. Some strange game of you know, cosmic chess. God loves people. He's good. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will teach sinners in the way. If you're in that category, you haven't believed on the Lord, you know it. You got a sneaking suspicion that all this Christian stuff that you've maybe been learning over the years, either as a young person or an old person, you start to think, well, you know, I'm questioning that. Think again. It's just so interesting that the world tries to replace God and the atheists come and they say, you know, we don't need God for morals. We don't. And they kind of start well. They say, you know, moral value is based on don't hurt anybody. Well, that's what it says in Romans, right? Romans chapter 13. Love does not work ill to his neighbor, therefore love fulfills the law. And they'll bandy about the terminology of love and everything else until it comes to, let's say, sexuality. Well, I can live with my boyfriend or I can live with my girlfriend. The morality of that is based on human you know, consent, not on divine truth and law and righteousness. So they start going in a humanistic direction. And then a Christian comes by and says, you know, that's wrong. Your lifestyle is wrong. And what's the response? Well, that, that kind of speech is violent. You're hurting me with your speech. And all these groups of people that say they're being hurt because Christians are saying their lifestyles don't work with God, they start getting together and canceling everybody and start advocating for a government. We need somebody to come in and shut these people up. Let's get the government on that, on that cart. We need to empower the government to manage speech and compel speech of a certain kind and suppress speech of another kind. And, well, if people don't comply, then we need the government to not only police it, but to coerce it. Where's that heading? You see, atheistic so-called morality starts well, but very soon, where are you? You're in a totalitarian state, aren't you? And that's why communism always goes there. Socialism always goes there. Because it's the humanistic state that is elevated to the place of God. Love God. The state was never ordained to take the place of God. Humanists, atheists, they don't have an answer. They just proclaim they do. Anyway, that was kind of a bonus statement. Don't know why I put it in there, but thought it was important. So why don't we pray and ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne and we just think of these marvelous words, your own son, your own eternal son, the eternal word of God, the one through whom and for whom the entire universe was made, stood in front of men who were trying to test him and trick him. That's just mind-boggling in itself. And Lord Jesus, you gave the simplest answer ever about how to please you, what you're looking for out of our life, and it's to love you. And Lord, we just pray this morning and ask each one of us, you would just make that more and more real than the very practical and detailed things of life. We will love you 
in all the definition that your word expresses it in, whether the Psalms or the Proverbs or the, the New Testament statements of how we're to live our lives, that, Lord, we would see that this is loving you. This is what you're looking for. We are the people you want sitting on your lap one day, forever. And you just want us to be like you. And pray, Lord, that you would write this on our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.